I do invite you to be turning to Acts chapter 20. I actually wrote this message a month or so ago before I got, for I had my cold. And then the next week I knew I wanted to go to an Easter series, so I had to write another sermon. And doing that and knowing myself, I told myself, I'm going to get to that week and be like, no, I got to rewrite it. Well, it actually didn't happen, so I don't know if that means the message is not spirit-inspired or if it was good enough, so we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> um, I hope to, we've been going through a series in Acts as well as First and Second Samuel intermittently, and I hope to, to finish our third time in Acts, hopefully by the end of May. Uh, I intend to finish this time after chapter 20, and that's what we're in today. Last time we were in Acts 20, we covered just the very beginning of verse 7. And we had this gigantic packing, unpacking I should say, of we talked about the new covenant and how it pushed the old covenant out along with its rigorous observance of the law and the Sabbath observation being a part of that. And we see this clearly in verses like Hebrews 8.13, where the author there says, by speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete in aging will soon disappear. If you've ever had a hard time reading the Old Testament, like outside of a few of the books that I liked when I was growing up and became a teenager, I'll, I'll be honest, for me, for the longest time, the Old Testament was torture. Um, weird names, weird geography, weird customs. You know, why would I care about a Jehoahaz and Shiloh and the Northern Kingdom and three babies? And I just made up most of that. But, you know, why would I care? Um, you get the picture, especially in places like Kings and Chronicles. It's like, whoop-dee-doo, I'm reading genealogical records and family histories of people I don't even know, of places I don't even know. And you know, I'm a pretty bad with directions as it is even in Idaho, so how am I going to figure out uh, Old Testament geography? That all changed for me when I realized, you guessed it, the Bible is about Jesus. And suddenly the Bible in the Old Testament especially became kind of this exciting treasure search. Where is Jesus? Where is the New Covenant? Where is he going to show up this time? And uh, today... People about today's passage, people might laugh and and make some humorous or maybe well-deserved remarks about my preaching and how long I can preach so long that the Eutychuses of this world start to fall to their deaths because the preacher's not shutting up. But we can also look at the surprising reality that Paul rose this man from the dead and the connections that this has to both Jesus and Peter, but as well as to prophets of the Old Testament. It's all connected. And uh, as for the context of our text, Paul, Luke, and their companions are on Paul's third missionary journeys out of three that are recorded. And Paul has stated that his ultimate destinations next are Jerusalem, and then he wants to head to Rome. And that's actually the rest of the book of Acts. And they're in Troas, which is the name of a region. They're likely in the city of Troy. This is north and west up the coast from Ephesus in present-day Turkey. And one other important thing to note is Luke told us that Passover had just taken place. In other words, what we celebrated last week in terms of the resurrection of Jesus 
that might be likely what's in the mind of the Christians. So with all that in mind, I invite you to stand one last time, if you're able to, for the reading of the Word of God. And let's read verses 7 through 12 together. We read, On the first day of the week we came together to break bread. Since Paul was ready to leave the next day, he talked to them and kept on speaking until midnight. Now there were many lamps in the upper room where we gathered, and a certain young man named Eutychus, seated in the window, was sneaking, was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell from the third story and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and threw himself on the young man and embraced him. Do not be alarmed, he said. He is still alive. Then Paul went back upstairs, broke bread, and ate. And after speaking until daybreak, he departed. And all the people were greatly relieved, not because he departed. (laughs) They were greatly relieved to take the boy home alive. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, as we look at this unique story that you've given us through the Holy Spirit's authorship in Luke, we do find things to chuckle about, but we also know you you put this in for a reason. Um, Let alone the fact of a resurrection is exciting enough to report on, but there's deeper reasons, I believe, you've given us this story. and We just ask that you would speak to us, that you would use this scripture to change our minds and hearts, to comfort us, to excite us, Convict us, whatever you desire to do, Holy Spirit, we invite you to be the one speaking and not I. We ask this in the saving power of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As some of you may recall, my grandmother on my dad's side passed away here a month or so ago. She lived in Georgia. Um, Both she and my grandfather were in the Air Force, so they moved around a lot, but Georgia was their home state. I didn't know her as well as much as my dad's side of the family. I've not known since I've lived in in Idaho near my mom's side of the family. However, we would still make it down to Georgia every now and then. And I suppose since we were gluttons for punishment, we usually drove. Either that or we thought it was a little bit cheaper. Um, But it was a four-day driving trip whenever we drove down there. And I still remember whenever I was a teenager, maybe 14 or 15, and we're pulling into this dirty country road in Georgia named Davis Road. Yes, after my relations of my dad. And we we park into this big field, my grandparents' field, in front of their house, which was uh, more like an old modular home, kind of small. And it was around 9 p.m. or so, and we're piling out of our Dodge Intrepid. Middle of the summer, crickets chirping, cicadas, cicada-ing, whatever they do. Frogs and toads croaking, and my parents and my siblings pile out of this car, and my grandma is waiting for us on the porch. My grandfather still alive at the time behind her, waiting behind her. And what is their son, my dad, doing? Oh, that's a toad! And he kind of runs across the hill field chasing it to pick it up. And my mom says, we didn't drive 2,500 miles for you to chase toads across the field. (laughs) So we eventually pile into my grandparents' meager little house. And while there was a guest bedroom for my parents, we kids usually ended up on mattresses on the floor in the living room. 
But before we did that, what happened at nine in the evening? (laughs) We stayed up late talking. Though we were all dead tired from our last day of driving, we still managed to, to stay up late talking because we are one of those families who loved each other's company. We missed each other and glad to finally see each other no matter what time it was. And I, and I get this sense of familial love shown here in Troas that despite the circumstances, even whenever it doesn't seem too convenient to meet, things are going on. Even so, we read, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Now, like I said, the last time we were in this text, we talked about this, but I'm assuming this is probably not the first in history, but where we kind of get they met for church on Sunday. If we don't count Pentecost, which was more of a spontaneous, unplanned church service on Pentecost Sunday, you know, I I spent a good 50 minutes or so discussing the particulars of Sabbath and Saturdays and Sundays and what's in the law and what does this mean. But one of the things I maintain was that I do not believe, I do not believe that the Christian Sabbath or the new Sabbath in the new covenant is Sunday. Um, I believe that Sunday is a traditional day of worship, um, likely for the tradition of the Lord Jesus resurrecting or maybe even Pentecost. But nowhere in Scripture do we read that Sunday was ordained or prescribed as the day for Christians to worship. Now, it makes sense, again, why Jesus' people have decided to meet that day. But I just don't feel compelled legally or biblically to say that it's a, mu- a must. Sabbath in the New Testament is simply this, rest. Rest in Christ. And you can Sabbath anytime. Again, if you weren't here, you can find out where to find it on your bulletin. The sermon was entitled, The First Day of the Week. But One of the things I wonder or perhaps lean into assuming is that I would not be surprised if early church gatherings were always afternoon into evening. Because in the Jewish world, Sunday was Monday, right? Uh, Judaism saw a six-day work week and only Sabbath, Saturday off. Ancient Rome actually saw a day off every eight days, except the day off was whenever you brought your produce to the market and then you observed religious rites and then it was back to the grind. Uh, Christians did not originate in a five-day work week, two days off. Oh, glad everybody already observes a weekend. How convenient. We can plug our day into Sunday. And No, it wasn't like that. It was the Monday for the Jews and then for the Roman Empire who saw an eight-day week schedule. I don't know how often Sunday fell on an already day-off sort of day. In any case, I wouldn't be surprised if most Christian gatherings if not happening alongside or with a Sabbath service, wherein Christians are maybe just showing up at a synagogue to reveal that the Messiah came, if they're meeting regularly on Sundays, it's probably more than often than not Sunday evenings. And it appears to be evening here. We read that since Paul was ready to leave the next day, he talked to them and kept on speaking until midnight. Now, unless Paul started mid-afternoon, if for whatever reason that Sunday most of those gathered didn't have jobs. Again, I'm inclined to think this is actually evening time. And so Paul kept on speaking until midnight. Um, This is likely Paul teaching and and sermonizing. 
Uh, the term there behind speaking is could entail discussion, but it is also the term Luke uses whenever he enters a synagogue and disputes and so forth. Only earlier in Acts chapter 20, Paul was wintering in Corinth for three months. And while in Corinth, it is believed that he wrote the epistle to the Romans. So there's Corinth, and we're in Troas right now. And if you've ever read the book of Romans, you likely know and can sense that this is Paul's magnum opus. <laughs> it's a book of the Bible that could ever... Uh, it is his magnum opus, if a book of the Bible could ever be called one. But it's Paul wrote to a church that he never planted... And he likely didn't know anyone there, so he was probably giving them what we Christian theology nuts like to call a systematic theology, right? Here's my basic outline of beliefs. And this is clear in Romans that Paul starts with sin and he moves into salvation and then he moves into sanctification and then he finally ends on practical implications. That's a rough outline. And I bring up all that to say, I can only imagine... When Paul realizes, I only have a few days here in Troas, so I know why he's keeping them up all night. He doesn't want to miss anything. God has has given Paul this gift. Paul wants the the Troas Christians to have it all. Uh, Sure, there are some people like Eutychus who we'll discuss. Maybe uh, Eutychus can have some slack cut to him. But some people who might show up at the church and then say, okay, wind it up, windbag. (laughs) That's quite enough. But we also miss that the church is still in its relative infancy. It's not like that the Troas church has been cranking for generations like Woodland Friends has. And everyone there comes from other churches from other areas. The Bible isn't even fully written. But Paul, so Paul cannot say, open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. (laughs) Because he just wrote that. And likely the Roman church has that letter. Who knows when it was starting to be copied. So Paul is likely trying to make his Troas visit worthwhile. He would probably feel like he's done a disservice if there was time for a church gathering and he wasn't there. So it's going on late, well into midnight, hitting Monday, and we read, Now there were many lamps in the upper room where we gathered. Now, we may not think about this, but Luke wrote this down for a reason. Um, like the fact it was going well into midnight usually might be enough information. We might assume, we might assume that more light was needed, but Luke put this in for the explanation of the following episode, namely, why Eutychus went to the window seat. Now, they didn't have light bulbs in that day, chandeliers and, and lamps with, with switches. These were likely oil lamps that made the room hotter and stuffier, <laughs> as well as a fragrant in an unpleasant way, not mentioned sucking a lot of the breathable air in what appeared to be a crowded room. And so, what Eutychus was about to do was probably not from a lack of intelligence. He just wanted some cool air. And I kind of want to leave this text and draw some more poetic or imaginative pictures here, though. Jesus' best friend and evangelist John says, the true light who gives light to every man, was coming into the world. He also says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, 
yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. As I was thinking about this text, I was thinking who would have imagined within 20 years or so after Jesus walked the earth on the coast of the province of Asia, or that is Turkey, in Troas, again, likely Troy, who would have imagined that a gathering in the name of Jesus, who walked Israel, and I looked it up on Bing Maps for you in case you were curious, that's a 1,220-mile drive. So how long would that be in a walk? How long would that be on a boat? But who would imagine that only 20 years after Jesus, that people would be gathering and staying around until midnight just so they can hear more about him? Let alone the awesome reality that you and I live every day and perhaps never consider. Here we are on the other side of the world, 2,000 years later, still gathering in his name to hear more about him. In the darkness or the remoteness of the far reaches of the earth, in the Romans' mind, back in that day, here is a room lit up because of the gospel. While Troas is filled with pagans, There's a growing city within a city, a growing light within darkness. Darkness is coming into the world and the world won't overcome it. I needed that because it's still the truth. As long as the world's still spinning, it can get as dark as it wants. But where there is Christ, there is hope. Where Christ's people gather, light lives and the darkness won't ever overcome it. Where Christ resides, hope, light, peace, truth, love, and the makings of redemption resides. This is amazing to me, and I think we miss it. We, we keep thinking that Luke, that God the Almighty, that the Holy Spirit was just writing us itineraries in the book of Acts, whenever I think he was writing more. Let's move on, though, to a different sort of excitement to, in verse 9. It says, and a certain young man named Eutychus, seated in the window, was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. While he was sound asleep, he fell from the third story and was picked up dead. Now, uh, now, now perhaps, as I said, this is why Luke put in the, the random bit about the room being lit up that night. We get it, it's midnight. But why is Eutychus deciding to plant his rear end on the windowsill? And then we realize, oh, it's the lamps, the air circulation, all that. That's kind of bothering him. Windows didn't have glass in those days. Maybe there were some wooded doors for weather. But uh, Eutychus was maybe hot, apparently tired. He needed some fresh air. And I just can imagine, you know, we're, we're told that Luke and Paul were companions and Luke had to fit this jab in in the Bible. Paul talked on and on. <laughs> he's, he's giving the book of Romans on steroids. Lucky you, Troas, I'm here in person, so you get to hear to straight it from the horse's mouth, and I only have one day, so it's going to be tonight. <laughs> but here's this Eutychus guy. Do you want to know what Eutychus means? Fortunate. Lucky. Of course it does. <laughs> now, Believe it or not, some commentators have gotten really stuffy and high and mighty with this picture. Here's why you shouldn't fall asleep in sermons. Or Eutychus gives, you know, the lamest, poorest example, the lowest illustration, just sleeping through sermons. Don't do it. 
And I'm thinking, it's past midnight, give Lucky a break. (laughs) Uh, I don't think Luke, nor the Holy Spirit, had in mind to embarrass people who fall asleep in sermons. I just don't think that was rating high on their priority list. Now, of course I believe it's appropriate and good nature to try and stay awake during sermons. And you might say, well, it's appropriate and good nature to try to keep your time down on preaching. <laughs> it comes down to matters of preference. I, I go on walks and listen to, you know, hours of sermons. So, But hey, I fall asleep watching movies. If you're tired, it happens. So, the Holy Spirit in my mind has not cemented old lucky story here for generations to make a moral statement about staying awake for long sermons. If it convicts you to stay awake, great. If you're one of those people who fall asleep in sermons and say, hey, maybe I should stay awake so I don't fall over and die, good. Yes, do that. When he was sound asleep, he fell from the third story and was picked up dead. So writes Luke, the physician. Now, this is a third story window. I don't care if he's landing in bushes. He's had a little time for gravity to get up some speed. I think he's dead. Now, this will probably shock you, but there is debate about this, particularly because of what Paul is going to say in the next verse. We'll talk about that when we get there. Now, the original language does not say picked up as dead. Just two Greek words. The first was picked up and the second was necros, meaning a corpse. Now, if you're aware of this debate, you you might say, you seem pretty adamant about what's debatable. And I would respond, I don't think it's a debate. It's like debating over the order of service in the bulletin. It's written to communicate something pretty easy with solid words. This wasn't unclear. He was picked up dead. Necros. No doubt an exciting moment in the church service. Maybe a few other people woke up at that time. (laughs) Um, I remember at Valley View Nazarene, which is the church I grew up at in Kamei, there was this horrible season during my teenage years, maybe pushing young adult, and within the confine of maybe about six months, maybe less, there was just seemed to be one emergency after emergency during church events. One guy had a, a seizure one evening during a, a game night. One person passed out or dehydration, I think, during a sun, uh, Sunday morning. Another guy had a Heart attack, or maybe the dehydration was a heart attack too, I don't remember. But in the span of like a relatively short time, it got to the point where I'm pretty sure all of us thought, who's next? What's going to happen next? And I think all of those people survived, and thankfully nobody died at the church. But it certainly added to some tension. And I also think, humbly put forward, about a lot from a lot of our minds, we thought, We're getting attacked. We must be doing something good in the spiritual realm. Maybe. I don't know if we should ever take these sorts of positions. Nobody ever wanted to make the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant connection. Like, maybe we're just so horrible that people are dying. Uh, I don't think if anybody receives any verifiable revelation from God, maybe we shouldn't read too much into why people get sick. But, um, I do get it. And I I remember the feeling of unwelcome tense inter- interruption. And I think those two heart attacks happened during the meet and greet time before or after the service, but seeing an old man on the floor unresponsive, a few folks crowded, crowded around and this tense hush following over the masses, yeah, it's an unwelcome sight at a church service. Somebody in Troas ran down three stories 
ran over to a lifeless heap on the ground. Maybe it was Eutychus' dad, maybe his brother. Whoever it was, they picked him up, droopy. A fall might not produce any blood anywhere on the outside, but bruising and internal bleeding. Tears may be starting to form. And as engrossing and perhaps even spiritually awakening as Paul's words were, the knight in Troas just turned a dark corner. Eutychus is dead. Or is he? We read in verse 10, But Paul went down, threw himself on the young man. Now, because Eutychus was picked up dead, as the text states, we can likely assume that he was moved back into her bed, or maybe Paul made, made it down there while he was still outside. Just lay him back down. I don't know. Whatever the case was, Paul threw himself on the young man and embraced him. Do not be alarmed. Now, these words here have meanings for being troubled, terrified, or in a, even in a noisy disorder. And I imagine it's like Paul saying if he were at Valley View Nazarene, if he had been there for a miracle, life doesn't need to pause in this tension here. This is going to end as another uneventful Sunday. <laughs> uneventful in so far as health emergencies go. Do not be alarmed, he said. He is still alive. Aha! Some who like to debate say, see, Kevin, a three-story fall, but Paul says he is still alive. He never died. Now, this isn't a resurrection story, Kevin. It's merely a CPR story. It's why Paul jumped on the man. Well, we have the physician Luke saying he was picked up dead with that term necros, corpse. And we have Paul apparently having to stop the masses from having a funeral right then and there. I don't know if who knows how many people can mistakenly consider someone dead with only one man who has no medical background that we know of, Paul, correctly diagnosing what everyone else has misdiagnosed. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's not likely in this case. And whenever we have similar encounters in the Bible, which is perhaps the Holy Spirit's primary point in telling this story, most, if not all the times in the Gospel accounts, in these stories wherein Jesus raises the dead, he uses similar language. What did Jesus say to Jairus and their friends about Jairus' daughter? She is weeping. She is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead, so the passage says. Or when, when Jesus said that Lazarus had fallen asleep in John 11, the disciples took that literally. Well, if he's just asleep, and then Jesus had to correct them. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And we come to the end of, of verse 10 in our text, and Paul's raising this man. And we only know that this man is raised and that what Paul is doing works, because in verse 12 it says the boy is taken home alive. But I want to make a few more connections for us here. First, another connection in Acts. And then I want to talk about a connection in the Old Testament. First, Paul is not the first disciple that we know of who has raised the dead like the Lord Jesus. We know that early on in Acts, Peter raised Tabitha. And Acts 9.39 or page 13.21 in your pew Bibles tells us that on his arrival, they took him to the upper room. All the windows, all the widows stood around him weeping and showing him the tunics and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Then Paul sent 
them all out of the room, he knelt down and prayed, and turning toward her body, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. Peter took her by the hand and helped her up. Then he called the saints and widows and presented her to them alive. Now, I know this is not exactly like Paul. Peter's not laying on her. But the simple fact that they're both raising dead people is, I think, a big connection. Kind of a big similarity. But what's interesting to me is also, this is a a third big symbol for Paul to really reflect an earlier feat of Peter's. I don't know if you remember the first. It's been about 14 years, I'm sure, when I preached it. But in Acts chapter 19, uh, I noted what I called an Ephesian Pentecost. And uh, Paul comes into Ephesus, and this is like a second time for Paul. Um, Apollos had already been to Ephesus, but as he does, he meets some people who were believers, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. And then Paul prays over them, and the Holy Spirit comes down, and they speak in tongues. And I I made this point then when I preached it that I kind of saw it as the Holy Spirit or Luke saying, this is a new Peter that Paul is. He's got the same office as Peter. He's just overseen a Pentecost and he's done it in pagan Gentile lands in Ephesus. Then as further verification and validation of Paul's ministry, we have Paul like Peter raising the dead. Now, Uh, Don't hear me all wrong. This is all God-sourced power. I'm not saying Paul and Peter are superheroes. But it is the Holy Spirit. It is Luke showing us that Paul is directly carrying out the ministry of the apostles. There was another uh, situation. I don't know if you remember when they said when Peter's shadow fell over people, they were getting healed. There was another situation where Paul said if his work clothes touched other people, they would get healed. So that's like the other connection. Paul, Peter, primary characters or focuses on certain people, if you will, after Jesus. I want to go back further. Luke knows that there is a connection of Jesus to King David. Whenever Luke spoke of Jesus' birth, he reported that the angel Gabriel said, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And this title of Jesus made it out apparently among the masses. Maybe you remember blind Bartimaeus trying to get his attention. What did he call him? Son of David, have mercy on me. David is the prime king of Israel, and many look to the Messiah as the son of David, another prime king who would bring Israel back. And though Jesus didn't bring it back as they wanted to, Jesus was and is the son of David. Why do I bring this up? You know, in the Old Testament, after David has come and gone, there are two prophets that are given a bit of focus in the book of First and Second Kings. And like there are many disciples of Jesus, but it appears ink is given to Peter and Paul. So there are many prophets, but ink is given to two people. You know who they are? Elijah and Elisha. And First Kings 17 and Second Kings 4 were given the story of these two prophets raising dead sons. Interesting, raising dead sons. Just like God has a dead son who raises from the grave. And Eutychus, we're told here, is also a boy. But it's interesting that it's also after the ministry of the greater King David that we're given these two interesting resurrection stories of two prophets of God. Just like these two apostles, Peter and Paul. The Bible is about Jesus. Luke 
The Holy Spirit is just giving us more vivid signs that Jesus and His people are fulfilling the Scriptures. The Messiah has come in the person, work, and ministry of Jesus. Well, the story ends back in our text a little bit interestingly. I don't know how I expected it at the end. But uh, I guess in the Gospel accounts, the episodes just kind of end the very moment Jesus raises someone, and then you're going to the next episode. But here we kind of see an after-the-fact going on. We read in verse 11, Then Paul went back upstairs, broke bread, and ate. <laughs> it's just funny to me. Well, raise somebody down. I'm hungry. Anybody else? <laughs> And after speaking until daybreak, he departed, and the people were greatly relieved <laughs> to take the boy home alive. Like I said, I don't know what I did expect. I guess maybe I expected, well, that really changed tonight's vibe. Let's go home, guys. Or, that's enough excitement, but not for Paul, and apparently not for the Christians in Troas. In verse 7, it told us that this is why the Troas Christians gathered to break bread. Apparently, conversation has led to Paul jumping right into teaching, and they hadn't gotten to the breaking of bread yet. But maybe in response to this miracle of the resurrection, indeed, like I said, not too long after Passover, verse 6, maybe it reminded them of the resurrected lamb, Jesus. Maybe it was a great time to remember Jesus by breaking bread, so they decided to do it then. The resurrected Jesus that Paul was preaching had resurrected someone in front of their very eyes. So they'd remember Jesus' death and resurrection by breaking bread, a common element, no doubt, of early Christian gatherings. The cross and the resurrection is, and if not, should be, front and center of our faith. It's a reality that screams, there is a Redeemer, there is a Resurrector. I just made that word up. There is someone who can bring light from darkness, who can bring good from bad, who can bring dancing from mourning, and he's real. Eutychus knows he's real. The Christians in Troas see that he's real. Do you and I know that he's real? And instead of letting this tense moment, this moment of life, death and uncertainty and life again, send the, the Troas Christians home in a stupor, they just come back to celebrate the resurrected Lord Jesus. And in light of what he has done before their eyes, they want to know more. They want to hear more what he's done in their days. And so Paul speaks until daybreak. I don't know if in our fast-paced world, with access to instant news day in and day out, with Russia and Ukraine and inflation and uncertainties here and there and personal issues and relational issues, I don't know, but I just don't think... Everyone, even in churches today, would be the kind of people who would want to stick around until daybreak. Don't worry, I'm not going to test that today. Another story I have from my time in Valley View, Nazarene. I remember one time when the church service went from programmed to unprogrammed. We have this sort of language in Quaker circles that services, some services are programmed. You look on the front of your bulletin, you realize it's programmed. There's an order of service some services are what we call open worship or unprogrammed, whereas we meet, gather in silence, prayer. Hey, you want to sing a song? Hey, I got something to say. Unprogrammed. Well, this one time at Valley View Nazarene, we went from programmed to unprogrammed. We started singing the song, I Exalt Thee. 
And then in the middle of the song, perhaps the pastor said a prayer or some people started praying and it just became obvious the Lord wanted to meet us in a special way. And I don't like to use that phrase because it sounds so cliche, but I know nothing better. Because I'm assuming the Lord wants to meet with us every Sunday. But this was kind of unexpected. Just a heavy weight, a heavy presence over us. More prayers began. The music kind of lingered. So we just bathed in it until about 12. (laughs) 1230. And the pastor said we were welcome to leave whenever he skipped his sermon that Sunday. He just felt like the Lord was there to meet us. No need to hijack the service time. Okay, God, that's enough. I got a sermon. And so now, again, I'm not I'm not saying shame on Valley of Nazarene or anything like that. I think I was actually one who kind of wanted to, to just deck out after 12, 1230. But I felt a bit obliged to stick it out. I think I was youth pastor by that point. And it just goes to show me, or at least how we Americans have gotten so used to fast food, instant gratification, you know, free two-day shipping with Amazon that slowed down since COVID started, and to where putting in an all-nighter just so I can hear some guy who apparently is a big wig in the church who I don't know from Adam, this Paul guy, all night. Wow, look, he rose Eutychus from the dead. Man, I'm beat. What a night. Wait, we got to stay longer? Paul's got more to say? How long is this going to last? Do we bask in God's presence? Anybody else find that one of the biggest struggles is Bible time? Like, I got the Facebook habit down. I got that down. I can check it 40 times a day, easy, but it's, it's no sweat. But getting in my Bible every morning... Even though it's beyond habitual for me, I got to tell you, I still have temptation. Sleeping in sounds good this morning. And have I read enough yet? Can I be over? Am I done? You know, I love the Bible. I love studying and preaching, but it still seems that, that temptation is always there. Did you know that as a pastor, I don't have any excuse to ever skip church? <laughs> now, when I was a kid... And my mom or dad would be sick. Kevin, you want to ride to church? Oh, well, if you're staying home, I will too. Nowadays, that's not an option. <laughs> now, that's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because it solidifies commitment in me, whether I like it or not. But I wonder if it was in the realm of possibility for me to stay home if I so choose, if I would be as committed as I am now. And I I want the passion of the Troas Christians. I want the devotion of the Troas Christians of Paul, who is already a busy guy. Paul's a busy guy. He's walking, sailing, traveling from place to place. He's going to give the Christians in Troas all he's got. And it's not a laborious check the watch. Am I missing out on TV? I need my Sunday nap. How are you going to keep on? How long are you going to keep on yapping, Paul? It seems like it was wanted. Do you spend time with God or are you willing to give him more time? Because I wonder if God truly saw in us, and I emphasize that word truly, if he truly saw a heart that said, Father, I do want to speak your face. I do want to spend more time in your word. I do want to spend more time in prayer, more time in your presence. I wonder if God would reward that. I wonder if if God would show himself in ways that you and I have not seen before. And I I wonder, maybe it might not be as theatrical as a medical emergency where resurrection is needed. But I wonder if it could be something we would mark down. The Lord met with me this way today. I don't know. I, I think there would be a marked difference. 
You know, after Moses spent nights with God, he'd come down the mountain glowing a little bit. Maybe if you and I spent more time with God, people would see a light about us. Don't you want to be a light in today's dark world? You and I never know the next person at the store who has just worried themselves into a frenzy after absorbing themselves with news all day. What if they met a Christian who had been devoted to time with God more and more each day? How would that affect them? We found out what these Christians did in the ensuing moments and the rest of the night after this resurrection of Eutychus. But when Paul left the next morning from Troas, what was the story of the Christians in Troas then? It's a great thought. The Holy Spirit can convict. The resources are available for you and I to begin spending more time with God daily. All it takes is obedience. All it takes, friends, is to do what Jesus commands us. Let's pray. Father, uh, it's amazing. With my phone, if there's something I want, I can literally find it in a few seconds, hit buy now and wait for it. To have the sort of devotion and love and radiation of your spirit that many Christians have, that can't be bought in a few seconds and delivered overnight. Father, that requires true devotion on our part. It amazes me to see these group, this group of Christians, and it seems nothing was going to stop them from just having an all-nighter with Paul. And many of us are shocked that they would devote that much time to listening to teaching. But it shows us where their heart was. Where is our heart? Father, where is our heart if, if the first thing we think about is when we get to leave, when we get to church? Where is our heart? If the first thing we think about whenever we open up your word in the morning or the evening or whenever we do it is, when will I be done? What do I got to do next? Help us to learn from the Martha and Mary story that sometimes our time spent with you is going to be sacrificial. And sacrificial, by definition, means there's going to be some things left undone. But, Father, you're worth it. Presence, Your presence is worth it. And Father, especially if you utilize that time not only to grow us spiritually, but then to use us to be your presence to someone else. Help us to see the value in it. And help us to check our heart. If we're not willing to spend that time with you, why do we profess you as Lord and Savior? So Father, I pray that this conviction would translate into action and repentance, but it seems like the only part you like to do for us is to convict us. Your spirit is available and necessary to repent, but there's still that slight yielding that we need to do to you to say, I need to change. I want to change. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would prompt people, convict them, and then help us to be yielded to your spirit so that we might repent and by your grace and power move forward, enjoying our time with you a little bit more. We ask and we pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.